Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is Mireille Gino, and you are listening to the New Books in African American Studies podcast. Joining me today is Professor Sonia D. Williams, currently professor in the Department of Media, Journalism, and Film at Howard University, and the winner of three George Foster Peabody Awards as a radio producer. She's also the author of Word Warrior, Richard Durham, Radio and Freedom, published by the University of Illinois Press, and the book we'll be discussing today. Professor Williams, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Um, it's great to finally talk to you. Um, <laughs> yeah, we've. <laughs> that's kind of an inside joke for the listeners. Um, it's been it's been um, it's been a, an interesting process to get to this point. Um, yes, <laughs> but I wonder if you'd begin by telling us a bit about yourself. Okay, um, no problem. I was um, born and raised in New York City, in the Bronx specifically, but it was a great place to um, grow up, and my parents. Well, really, um, they made sure that my brother and I um, took advantage of everything that New York City in its craziness and fullness had to offer. Um, and that included both um, everything on the educational side and and, and taking advantage of um, New York's public and, and private school system, as well as um, artistically. Uh, from the time that I was a child, music was... Um, quickly identified as my first love. <laughs> so uh, anytime there was an instrument around, um, a little baby ukulele, uh, a guitar, something like a blow in, that's what I was doing. So music was my entree into um, the artistic world, but also both my mother and father are readers. So they made sure that we read and um, fell in love with books and eventually um, also fell in love with writing. Um, so that's that's kind of the early background. And I really kind of came to this project and to my career through radio, but I got to radio through music. <laughs> so it all kind of meshed together. Well, the, um, the book obviously takes as its subject uh, Richard Durham, um, who was uh, known, I think, best for um, drama and dramatization. And I wonder if you'd start uh, by sort of telling us that maybe we, you might, I guess, speculate um, why you think he's not better known. I think that he, well, there's a lot of reasons. Um, for one thing, as a personality, he was not the kind of man to to really um, go out and self-promote. If you walked into a room and he was in the room, um, he wouldn't be the hell uh, fellow well-met. He wouldn't be the glad-handed kind of guy. He's really relatively soft-spoken and fairly quiet, particularly in in instances or cases where um, he wasn't, um, he didn't know the people in the room. But once he got into a discussion and or the discussion was really something close to his heart and it involved debate and 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 talk and, you know, really kind of interchange 
um, then he would, you know, really come out of, I wouldn't say out of his shell, but he would be more loquacious. <laughs> um, but in terms of why he isn't uh, more well-known, I guess the speculation is, one, that he was a bit uh, radical for his time, and so therefore he would not have necessarily have been in the mainstream. Um he also relished being in the shadows and exerting um, influence um, from behind the scenes. So he was not uh, someone, even as a writer, who would have uh, really pushed his work out there and self-promoted. And then, and then number three, um, his friends all felt that because his major, well, I won't say major, one of his early claims to fame was radio, and radio is rather ethereal, even if it's drama. Um, Of course, it's very ethereal if you're a DJ or if you're an announcer on a talk show, and you're, you know, you have, whether it's a daily program or weekly or whatever, you are on the air, you say what you have to say, or you're interviewing folks, and uh, unless it's recorded and uh, the recordings are played over and over again, uh, it's not necessarily necessarily going to last. And so I think because radio initially was his um, claim to fame and he was good at it, but it was also the time when, um, you know, radio, you heard it or you didn't. (laughs) Um, And even though there are transcriptions of some early radio programs from, say, the 40s and maybe the 30s. Um, it's not like today where you can go to your computer uh, or your cell phone and, you know, go to a particular website and, and hit a button. And there you can hear your favorite uh, feature or, or radio show or interview over and over again or as many times as you want. So I think that's it. And then later on in life, when he branched out from radio and got into both television, um, he was in print media, uh, he, you know, worked on, on an autobiography and he ghost wrote um, a couple of books uh, and he also got into the political sphere. I think that, again, he was a behind-the-scenes powerhouse. He, he was not someone who, who either self-promoted or wanted to be promoted, and so I think that's why he's not uh, more well-known. Makes a, that makes a lot of um, a lot of sense, and you've touched upon a number of things that uh, that, that we'll get to. Uh, the, the The first two chapters are sort of devoted to um, covering the the early part of his life, and he and his family were part of the Great Migration. Um, the family, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, he was born in 1917, um, and the family moved um, in the 20s to Chicago from uh, from Raymond, Mississippi, uh, for uh, parents wanted to move to improve their children's educational prospects. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's sort of a familiar, uh, pretty familiar narrative in terms of the North representing freedom and, and that sort of thing. Um, in your third chapter, which I think holds some really important insights into um, Durham's understanding of himself and, and this sort of very uh, interesting, deliberate self-fashioning, um, he goes through a couple of things you, you mentioned already that he his interest obviously in radio, but in this chapter, in the third chapter, you sort of detail you know how he tries his hand at boxing, he tries his hand at at, at, at poetry, um, he changes his name a couple of times, and I wonder if you'd sort of uh, talk a bit about about that this personal evolution. 
Yeah, it, it was really fascinating finding out about his early life because, again, I came to Richard Durham uh, because of my interest in and my work as a documentary producer in radio. So um, in finding out about his background, his family clearly followed the pattern that many African-Americans who were uh, born and raised in the South, um, either they were or their parents were or grandparents were um, former slaves. And of course, as soon as uh, slavery ended and we moved in, into the 20th century, education and increased employment opportunities was key. The key thing about um, his family was that they had an advantage over um, what happened with several other African-American families that moved from the South to the North, and that is um, Durham's father owned their land. Uh, they had 80 acres of farm, farmland in Raymond, Mississippi. So um, interestingly enough, and I talk about it in the book, um, they own that land. And when they moved to Chicago, they did have some savings, more money than, say, you know, some of their colleagues uh, who had also done the same northern migration. Um, so Durham was all of five when he uh, arrived in Chicago with his mother, father, and um, six brothers and sisters. Uh, but as he grew into a teenager, he was a really curious and, and really mischievous kind of boy. And one of the things that happened that helped to kind of set his path in life, I think, was that when he was um, in his early teens, maybe 12, 13, somewhere in there, he started having trouble with his uh, left leg and his parents just thought, oh, you know, it's it's growing pains. It's, it'll go away. But it didn't. And it persisted and it really bothered him. And he and they finally took him to a doctor and it was diagnosed as this chronic uh, condition that he had to wear a cast. And so he was restricted. Here's a boy who was really active out in the world, running around, doing his thing. And now he's um, he's got this cast on that they say might have to stay on for, if not months, then maybe a year. And, and so he's restricted more or less to the house. And so while he's home, he gets into really reading and he reads a variety of of uh, literature, poetry, drama, um, fiction, you name it. And his father and his mother were both readers and they loved, uh, they loved the word. And so I, I'm sure that he was influenced by, by that environment. And also he listened to the radio. So he's listening to what's going on on Chicago radio, the, uh, the dramas, the comedies, the music shows. And he also realizes by the time uh, 1928, 1929 happens that, you know, that the representations, the few representations of African-Americans on radio was pretty skewed to a negative stereotype. And we're talking about Amos and Andy, which was the most popular show, not only in Chicago, but eventually when it became national in 1929 in the country. Uh, so he's listened to that and Beulah, uh, which, by the way, when Beulah first came on, was voiced by a white actor. So you have this white man playing a black maid and really kind of crazy. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, he's listening to this and I'm sure he start his consciousness like, wait a minute, I know a lot of 
people in my family, the folks in his neighborhood um, who who are not like the the Beulahs of the world or the Amos and Andes. And that helped to really kind of form his consciousness. In addition, with his um, love of reading and reading a little bit of everything, he no doubt, he, he said several times that one of his influences was uh, Richard Wright, another transplanted Mississippian who had moved to Chicago. He was older than Durham, but he moved there and, you know, started writing and and doing that. And so uh, Richard Durham, uh, I'm sorry, Richard Wright had formed or helped to form a, uh, the Southside Writers Group, which was a group of, of um, some budding and some established writers, black writers. Uh, And their whole thing was to support each other in their writing, um, journey. Um, but Richard Wright was also um, in the Communist Party, and his philosophy was that Black writers needed to think about and utilize, say, some of the philosophies of Marxism, um, but also infused with the whole idea of what's happening in urban America. So, yes, we can take something from, you know, communist or or Marxist philosophy and also infuse it with the uh, traditions of European writers, but also of African-American writers. So I really think that he was influenced by that, uh, along with the the writing that he gravitated towards and and kind of consumed, which included uh, the writings of W. E. B. Du Bois. He was a Du Boisian. He loved uh, Du Bois's analysis and, and and writing. So he got into Du Bois. He was also a great fan of Langston Hughes, and eventually. Uh, became a friend of a lifelong friend uh, with um, Langston, um, and also the other person who he saw as one of his literary mentors was uh, Charles Dick- Dickens. Um, and that's because in reading Charles Dickens' work, he felt that he was a master storyteller. He could get the reader to uh, to be. Um, into to get into his world and with characters that were really compelling and interesting and could hold your attention just by the way he presented those characters. So I think that his earlier years, once he became a teen and then started uh, really reading and listening and um, absorbing these ideas from these various uh, other masters, writing masters, that, that helped to form who he became. Right. Um, in in thirty nine, he um, he secures employment with uh, with the uh, Illinois Writers Project, which is a WPA um, uh, sort of FDR's relief program. Um, and um, and I I wonder this is this also kind of finally opens the way to um, to radio as well. Um, and this you detail in your in your fourth chapter. Um, I wonder. This this is this is also a really pivotal uh, moment in his life, and I wonder if you would sort of talk about that in his entree into radio. Uh, yeah, he actually got into the Illinois Writers Project, which was a program of the WPA, because of uh, poetry. He um, in nineteen I think nineteen thirty. 
37, 36, somewhere in there, 38, he was writing poetry. He really loved poetry, which is, I think, one of the reasons why he was drawn to Langston Hughes. Um, and so he started writing. He got into a writing um, a group. And one of the requirements for the WPA Writers Program, the Illinois Writers Program anyway, was that you had to have published pieces. And because he had written so many um, poems, um, he had sent some of them to various uh, publications. So he was fortunate enough to get his work published in the Chicago Defender and the uh, Pittsburgh Courier and in the New Masses uh, magazine and a few other magazines. So he had a nice little cache of published work. And so when he applied to the Illinois Writers Project, um, that requirement he met. The, he also met the requirement that you had to know how to type, and he was an excellent typist. And so um, he applied, he, he was admitted, and he comes into this world that is really pretty <laughs> pretty unique. Um, Illinois, Chicago, New York, New York City, uh, California, San Francisco, and I believe even L.A., had some really uh, major talent um, who were working as part of the WPA Writers Program, um, and that in, in Illinois, you had people like Saul Bellow and Nelson Algren and Jack Conroy and Arna Bontomps and Margaret Walker, uh, Catherine Dunham, who were all working as writers in that writer's pro uh, project. So he comes into this and he's writing for the project. Essentially, he's, he's um, critiquing some of the articles that are in different periodicals. And then one day he <laughs> looks over and he sees this group of people who are sitting around this large conference table, about 20 uh, men and women, and he's like, what is going on over there? Because they were animated, they were laughing, they were arguing, they were really into their work. And he goes over and he finds out that this is the, the uh, Illinois Writers Project's uh, radio division. And these are men and women who are writing radio scripts for local uh, programs, and they're writing dramas, usually 15 minutes, and they're original based on whatever the program was, um, but they're writing these pieces, and then maybe a week or two later, they're actually uh, produced on, on air. Um, so he he gets involved with this writing division, uh, I mean, the, the radio division, and he's also there with Studs Terkel. Um, uh, another uh, black writer named Robert Lucas and several others, and it's it's like love at first sight. <laughs> you know, he really gets into it. And Arna Bontemps, who was his supervisor, said that you know this was it for him. Both him and Robert Lucas just kind of took to it, and and that's how he got into writing scripts for radio. Um, I I do say in the book that. Richard's uh, first scripts were were really pretty bad. 
<laughs> they, they, you know, they were way too long or at least lo- loquacious. There was very little action. He had a bunch of characters. And because it's radio, you don't see these folks. It's different if you're writing for television. You can write characters and they flow into this or onto the screen and flow off. In radio, um, you only have the voice and a voice sound effects and music. And you have to make sure that people understand who is talking and who they're talking to. And there's a clear distinction between characters. So, um, but the the great thing about this division was that they met every week and they critiqued each other's work. And if nothing else, Durham was a quick learner. And so with his, the critiquing sections, his, his writing for the ear definitely improved. And by 1941, um, as I say in the book, there uh, is evidence of of a script. One of the scripts that he wrote was for a series called Great Artists. And the Great Artists series aired on, uh, I forget what station it, it aired, but it was a, a show that highlighted some of the artwork and or artists who produced work that was displayed in the Art Institute of Chicago. And so that 1941 piece was um, about Francisco Goya. Um, the famous painter, and he really looked at, in his 15-minute script, uh, why Goya uh, produced and painted his anti-war uh, paintings that he's he's known for. So, so even then, he was talking about issues of equality and, and freedom and injustice and the horrors of war and why are we doing this and what are the inequalities that brought about the need for that kind of war. So that was it. Yeah. Well, and, um, you know, he, he continues to write. He's, you know, for, for a good period of time, he's, um, kind of living that freelance, uh, life and, and writing, uh, for among other things, the Lone Ranger radio show. Um, right. and he's writing for the Chicago defender where he's, uh, men- mentored by, uh, Metz Lockhart. Um, and, um, and it's, it's interesting because you mentioned that, that, uh, World War II period, 44, 45, which were boom years for the, for the black press gave him, um, somewhat, uh, maybe not paradoxically, but gave him a lot of, a lot of work as, um, as a freelance writer. Um, he also starts writing for the Democracy USA program. And I wonder if you would just uh, explain to the listeners what sort of program uh, Democracy USA was and some of the constraints that Durham was under as a scriptwriter for it. Okay. Um, good question. Well, he was actually not a freelancer for the Defender. He was actually a staff writer. Um, right. So right. he was working for them full time. But the Defender decided in the mid-40s that it wanted to try its hand at sponsoring a radio show because they saw it as another way of selling papers that, you know, on the air, on the radio, they could uh, have this wonderful dramatic series and promote the the paper. So, of course, the defender knew that Durham was a scriptwriter. Uh, Robert Lucas, his buddy from the uh, Illinois Writers Project, um, also uh, did some writing for the um, for the defender. So they figured, oh wow, we have two experienced scriptwriters, and we can really make this 
show go. And what it was uh, designed to be was a program, a weekly program that looked at um, African-American primarily, but, you know, there was some non-Black uh, people uh, focuses on folks who uh, who who in their life and in their accomplishments typified the the principles of, of democracy and freedom. So um, he was able to become, or he was hired um, as the um, the main scriptwriter for that, along with with Robert Lucas and I guess some uh, some others. But right when, right as they, the series was about to start, he got fired. <laughs> and um, unfortunately, this kind of happened several times in his life, uh, just to kind of show you this man's conviction and his kind of radical bent. Um, and he was fired because <laughs> he um, was pushing for the Chicago Defender to be part of the newspaper union, news, the, I think it's called the American Newspaper Guild. And um, of course, the uh, the defender kind of resisted that push. But the whole point was not just to be a member of this union. It was so that the workers, the writers who worked on the paper could get equal pay, um, you know, have, you know, their hours would be, you know, really kind of, they, they would have more say in the assignments and, and the kind of work that they had to do and the kind of compensation that they would um, be able to receive. So he was fired. Um, he went back into freelancing and Democracy USA went ahead and they quickly realized, uh, oh, wait a minute, <laughs> maybe we really do need Richard Durham to work with us because uh, this is no joke. I'm trying to do a uh, a weekly fifteen minute um, dra- dramatic program and and do it with people who really know what they're doing. So he was hired back in 1946, and and he was able to then work on that. So it was really um, it it. it it set up for Richard Durham what would later come and what would be his major claim to fame, and that was Destination Freedom. But that's how Democracy USA came about, and he uh, he really almost didn't get a chance to work on it because of his uh, his union moves. <laughs> well, and, and before we actually, uh, let's see, get into uh, Destination Freedom, um, I wonder if you talk a little bit about um, his wife, Clarice, who um, was sort of a, the sort of main breadwinner for a lot of, um, a lot of their marriage. Um, uh, she held a very, um, sort of, uh, had a very stable career, um, and his was a little, a little more uncertain uh, with time, you know, things like you just mentioned, uh, periods where he would be freelancing um, and not have uh, staff positions. I wonder if you sort of talk about that a bit. Well, Clarice Durham was actually the younger sister of a good friend of his, uh, another writer named Robert Davis. And Robert Davis was also part of the Illinois Writers Project. So they met not at the IWP, but they met um, in a writing group back in the the late 30s. And they were friends, and they remained uh, friends um, throughout. One day, (laughs) um, Durham 
went to the offices of the National Negro Congress, which was based in Chicago. It's a civil rights organization. And Robert had brought his sister with him because he had told her about this organization. And she said, oh, it sounds interesting. Let me go and check it out. And she went and Durham was there and uh, Robert introduced Durham to Richard and he was just smitten by this little pretty petite woman um, and they went out on dates and eventually married about a year later. So she was there and she was really a supportive um, spouse um, working herself with the Illinois Compensation Office, but she had designs and plans of being a teacher. So eventually she went back to school and then um, became a kindergarten and, and preschool uh, teacher. But she was, in a lot of ways, um, the stable, stabilizing force in their marriage and also a, a force or a, a point of some contention for Richard because he was he was often searching for that next job or that next writing job. And, and one thing I will say, which was fairly unique at that time, is that Richard Durham made his living as a writer. He never worked in any other capacity. At one point, he thought he would have to, um, particularly uh, during the war. But he just said, no, this is my path. This is what I want to do, and I'm going to find a way to do it. And and so in a lot of ways, he did do that. But there were times when he was only paid per script. So, you know, if he was paid $100 a script or 110 or 120 whatever it was, that can be um, a little... Um, Frustrating if you're not sure if one the script is going to come to you if you're going to get the assignments, and then you know how do you know how much longer that this this uh, scenario is going to last? But so anyway, um, Clarice Durham was definitely in his his supporter, his 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 love, and and they had some rocky times in their marriage early on, but she was right behind him and, and really, you know, helped to kind of keep the family um, together at times when his freelance work um, was a little spotty. Um, thanks for sharing that. I, I found, I just found the, um, I just found that relationship and dynamic uh, a really interesting uh, part of the, part of the book. Um, so Durham continues writing for Democracy Today, or I'm sorry, Democracy USA, um, mm -hmm. but he also um, starts uh, starts writing uh, Destination Freedom, which um, in sort of an interesting full circle moment uh, would air on the same station as Amos and Andy. Um, and it was, uh, you write in the book, uh, conceived as a series of half hour dramas about the lives and contributions of prominent Negro history makers. Um, so I wonder if you would sort of talk, um, yeah, just about Destination Freedom, what it was trying to do. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, please. Okay, no problem, no problem. Uh, Destination Freedom really was 
an outgrowth, an expansion of what Durham did with Democracy USA. And I will say, you you did ask uh, something about the restrictions. Democracy USA aired on WBBM, which was a CBS affiliate station in Chicago. So one of the, one of the things that the officials were um, not afraid of, but kind of told Durham that he needed to watch. And that was, you know, how he, he couldn't be but so radical or be but so vocal about some of the um, forms of discrimination and the, the fight against it from some of the people he featured. And he felt that was kind of like tying his hand behind his back in some ways. But he found you know, small ways to get around it. Um, You know, it might have been a section where characters said something about inequality or injustice, uh, or there might have been a scenario that he dramatized that would um, demonstrate that. Um, But with when, when Democracy USA went off the air, and I couldn't find exactly when, but it probably was in the early... Uh, early 1948 or late 1947, he was searching for his next major project. And um, in talking with friends, who included, by the way, Oscar Brown Jr., uh, the the singer entertainer who you know was radical in his own way and and really a fine fine um, entertainer and artist. Um, and they sat down and said, okay, what if we propose to have a half hour, not a 15-minute short program, but a half an hour weekly drama series that highlights the accomplishments of some major um, historic and contemporary um, Black leaders, Negro leaders. And um, he proposed the idea to the Chicago Defender they weren't as 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 excited about trying to sponsor another show because they had some some fallout that they had from uh, WBBM and and they weren't really in, excited about going into radio again. But he somehow he worked his magic and uh, talked with some NBC officials for the NBC uh, affiliate station WMAQ in Chicago. Uh, and they worked out the details, and basically uh, they said, okay, we'll give you the go-ahead to come up with this half-an-hour weekly um, show on WMAQ starting in June of 1948. And that's how Destination Freedom came about. Um, Durham was the sole writer. He was a creator. He had, he had come up with the title uh, with some of his friends, and they based it on the spiritual old freedom. Um, so that's kind of where the title came from. Um, but he he wanted to focus on people like uh, from slavery. Let's talk about like Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass and uh, Denmark Vesey, all the way to contemporary um, artists uh, with people who. Um, had just made major history uh, in terms of breaking down the color barrier. Um, you know, folks like Jackie Robinson and Lena Horne and others in both entertainment, in education, in medicine, and you name it. So that's how Destination Freedom came about. And again, like I said, I don't. There were very little documents that that really um, indicated how he convinced both 
the Chicago Defender and WMAQ to to say, okay, we'll do this. But they worked out a deal, and it was going to be a joint um, sponsored program between uh, the Chicago Defender and WMAQ and NBC. And it went on the air with the first show being about Christmas addicts, the first uh, black man to um, to really kind of die in the service of the American Revolutionary War. Um, and so they loved they loved the first show, <laughs> but um, Durham was late on getting the script accomplished. Now here, let me let me back up just a little bit. Richard Durham becomes the sole scriptwriter for this ongoing series. At the time, there wasn't any plan to say, okay, it's only going to run for a month or a week or whatever. But it was, it was going to be an ongoing series, weekly, every Sunday morning at 10. And he was the writer for this half an hour show. Um, it's hard enough to write 15 minutes or half an hour once a week or once a month. But if you're talking about not only doing the research, figuring out how you're going to dramatize whatever segment of this person's life is, is, and then actually getting into the studio and bringing the actors in and the technicians and, and the directors and all and making it happen. This was a phenomenal kind of feat, but he decided he wanted to do it. And his main thing was he wanted his voice, his vision, his um, signature uh, uh, writing to be what Destination Freedom was all about. Um, unfortunately, because he missed the first deadline, it was delayed. The debut of the show was delayed a week. Then uh, NBC officials said, mm, okay, we're going to have to bring in some other people. <laughs> and uh, get some other writers in here uh, because we can't have this. We can't, you know, you can't miss um, a deadline for a live show that's going on the air at a certain time. You can't, we can't just put anything in its place if it doesn't happen. Um, and Durham went crazy. He's like, wait a minute, hold up. This is my show and my vision and my copyright. And you can't just bring in other writers uh, to do this. There was also an issue about uh, Richard Durham getting paid um, the fee that he was supposed to get paid per script. Um, and by the time this decision was made, he hadn't, I think it had been like three weeks into the series and he hadn't received the check. So he sat down, wrote this long um pretty eloquent uh, letter and said, you need to cease and desist and here's why. And they worked it out and he became, once again, the sole uh, writer for Destination Freedom. The show, the show is basically about um, Blacks fighting white supremacy um, and, and what you describe in the book as a sort of racially inclusive universalism. And one of the interesting things about that is that it could only be heard in Chicago and not um, not in the South. Um, so I wonder if you talk about that as well as the um, the sort of abrupt end um, that the show comes to uh, for for political reasons. Yeah, Richard really wanted his program to well. Well, there were several several things were happening on several levels. Uh, he was essentially a freelance contractor while he worked on this show. He was never officially hired by WMAQ, 
Um, he was not a staff member. Um, and so he was paid on a script by script basis. But he, you know, the series was long running. It ran for two years and, um, he really wanted, uh, to expand the reach of the program and its message outside of Chicago and outside of the Chicago metropolitan area to the country, if not larger, but at least have, have it, uh, enjoy national distribution. Um, the director of the series was a man named Homer Heck. He was a full-time employee of WMAQ, and he was the director. Uh, and he said, well, you know, I really don't see that happening. And given the, the tenor of the time still in 1948, 1949, and 50, um, if the show had received national distribution on the NBC network, it was clear that even then uh, the Southern affiliates would not, would not play it. And there would be protests and, you know, there, there, there might be a fallout of, you know, the show being canceled overall. So there was that tension between, okay, well, you know, yes, we, we're, we're gr glad that this show is on the air and it's getting great reception in Chicago, but we think that based on the reception we are getting in Chicago, that it could be broadcast nationally and get the same kind of, um, of, of inf have, have people who are just as interested in it across the, the country. I'll also say that after it had run about a year, it started winning a lot of awards, local awards of national awards. And so to Durham, it was clear this could have life outside of the Chicago area. Um, NBC, of course, resisted it. And as the show went on, the tensions kind of escalated. And finally, in 1950, uh, Durham started looking at options of, well, okay, uh, there's this thing called television coming in. And television, it was clear, was going to be the next hot new mass medium. So while maybe I could try to find a way to get Destination Freedom on the national radio network, I'd have even more uh, eyeballs and potential for outreach if it was on television. And so he starts to think about that and the tensions that he had uh, with NBC officials and WMAQ escalated to a point where he finally said in August of 1950, I'm done, we're over. The problem, though, was that he had started uh, negotiating with some potential uh, funders to back his pro his idea to either go to television or national radio. And just as he was doing this, and it looked like it was going to work, he had found some folks who he had worked with previously who said, yes, we're interested in working with you. Let's see what we can do. Um, <laughs> WMAQ... Uh, in October of that year, this is 1950, announced that this the the reemergence of this wonderful award-winning show was going to start airing in late October, and the, this wonderful new show was called Destination Freedom. Um, not only that, but while Destination Freedom in Durham's 
um, world was about these uh, African-American heroes and heroines and, and innovators and, and really wonderful people who were doing great things. With the new iteration of this, this Destination Freedom from WMAQ, it was all about white uh, heroes. And so it, he, when he heard this and saw the advertisements and they didn't consult him about this at all, he quickly called them up and said, oh, you have to cease and desist. This is my work and this is my copyright. You can't just appropriate it this way. Um, and of course, they claimed that he was a staff writer and this was there. They owned it. Long story short, he decided to sue. And, and I tell folks uh, is that if you think about it, in 1950, for this lone black man to sue a major network was, <laughs> I'm sure that W uh, MAQ and NBC thought, who is this guy? What does he think he's he's going to do? Um, but it, he he decided to go ahead and sue, and it, it wound its way through the court. But that's why there was this abrupt end, and then it came back on air for a short period of time um, as this show about white heroes. Yeah, and, and after, well, I guess after uh, perhaps concurrent with this protracted legal wrangling um, that followed um, his suit, um, he starts working with the uh, the UPWA, the United Packing House Workers of America, a progressive union. Um, he wrote for UWPA, um, uh, or I'm sorry, UPWA publications. Um, which in turn sort of opens the way uh, for uh, some involvement, um, significant involvement rather, with uh, with the Nation of Islam. And I wonder if you would sort of talk about that um, that transition. Yeah, in the book I talk about how once he he sued WMAQ and NBC. Clearly, he was a person not riding in the broadcast industry. He could not work in radio, and he also couldn't get into television, which is where he saw himself moving. Um, so he had to find other work, and the other work that he found uh, initially was as a contractor for uh, the United Packing House Workers of America. And he wrote, um, he was hired to write a pamphlet about um, workers' rights and, and that. Um, that contract ended up becoming a full-time position, and he ended up becoming a really major power broker within the union, um, helping to work on the education programs that the UPWA initiated and some of the social justice uh, initiatives that they they created and 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 really recommended that their union members um, participate in. Uh, it was it was really um, an invigorating kind of time for him because now we're talking about the early to mid 1950s and the civil rights movement as we call it now was really. Um, taking off uh, and he had a chance to interact with a range of people um, I write about how he 
um, got involved or helped his members get involved with the Emmett Till case, the, the case of the 14-year-old Chicago a youth who, who went to Mississippi in the summer of 1955 and was killed um, horribly um, by the relatives of a woman who supposedly this young boy had uh, whistled at. And so they got involved with that. Durham helped to kind of finagle some things there. And then he also was involved or got involved with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, when King came to Chicago to raise money to support the Montgomery bus boycott. So he had his hands in, in really a little bit of everything. And he was writing and organizing and and educating. He he was really kind of taking his his activist uh, writing role to another level. It wasn't it wasn't a media, it wasn't radio, and it wasn't television, but it was related, and it it really kind of used all of his skills um, because he was a master organizer, and he also knew how to read people and understand what helped to motivate. Um, folks. So that's what he did. Um, but again, um, with his forward thinking and his sometimes, sometimes um, being a bit too forward, um, he got fired in 1957 from the union, which I detail in the book. And then he moved on eventually to uh, becoming the editor of Muhammad Speaks which was the national newspaper of the Nation of Islam. Now, uh, one of the things that really happened, I, I had an opportunity to interview his brothers and sisters who were still alive uh, when I started the project. And he, um, they said, well, the, the Nation of Islam? What, what, you're, not, you're not Muslim. What, what are you doing? But the thing that I learned, and it's just really a, a wonderful exploration of the way this man thought and how he figured um, different ways to reach audiences, and primarily African-American, but he was really interested in various audiences and different ways you could reach them and provide information and inspire them to positive social change. And that's what he saw as the opportunity in Muhammad Speaks. Um, it was a newspaper that, of course, talked about uh, what ha was happening in the nation, in this religious organization. But it was also a newspaper that clearly was about covering news that affected Black people in the diaspora, in the African diaspora, and around the world. So what is happening in Asia? What is going on in South Africa or other parts of Africa? What is going on in Europe that also affects what's happening in America? What is happening um, across the American uh, landscape. So he saw this as a way of reaching not only uh, a range of people, but also talking about issues in ways that you might not find in, say, the New York Times or the Washington Post. Um, so that's how he 
gravitated to uh, the Nation of Islam's uh, paper, and he was, as as several people told me in, in the interviews that I did, he was the best writer and the most inspiring writer on the paper. He led by example, so if you had, if you were assigned to write a piece, and he, you'd go off and you'd write it and bring it back in, and he would read it, you know, and say thank you and move on, and then you might find that once it was published in the paper, he had rewritten it to just be a whole nother kind of thing. Not that it it took away from the essence of what you did, but he made it even better and more compelling. And he that was his whole thing too, that you write and you write about things you you may know or if you don't know it you do enough research so that you feel comfortable in in writing about it and then you can infuse um all of the elements that you can bring to it your knowledge your even if it's recently acquired knowledge um what's what the analysis of that knowledge you know means in terms of the interpretation of of the event or whatever and then moving on from there so he and he established which was also fairly unique, a, a really great relationship with Elijah Muhammad, who was the head of the Nation of Islam, and was able to convince um, uh, Mr. Muhammad that the news of the world, the news about Black people and people of color in the world should be separate from the news that is about the nation. Similar to, as someone told me, similar to what happened with, if you read the Christian Science Monitor. So the Christian Science Monitor is really known as a newspaper that has some great uh, excellent news coverage, but it also talks, has maybe sections that deal with, um, you know, specifically religious uh, subjects. So that's kind of the, the model that Durham used or followed while he was the editor of Mom Speaks. So another uh, key part of that uh, period of his life is, is the other Muhammad, right? Muhammad Ali, um, with whom he would... Uh, also develop a, a professional uh, relationship. But his television uh, writing career uh, finally uh, finally begins. So I wonder if you would talk um, talk about both of those things. In, in, the, in the book, I, I talk about how television had fascinated him from the late 40s. So television was a medium that he clearly saw himself gravitating towards. But with the lawsuit against NBC, you know, that was put on hold. Once um, the lawsuit um, reached its conclusion, which I talk about in the book, um, he then was able to do some things, although his name was not necessarily attached to it. And both his relatives and some friends speculated that it may have been because uh, if you're talking about the 50s, um, kind of leading into the 60s, you still had some remnants of 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 the blacklist, uh, people who were blacklisted because if they were communists or leftists and, you know, what that meant. But also because, you know, he had uh, become a person non grata with his lawsuit. 
But he was able to do some freelance writing for various shows, um, science fiction programs, um, like The Outer Limits, for those people who may remember that, and Climax and some others. Uh, And so he did that. And then in the late 1960s, there came an opportunity to work on a show that WTTW, which is the public broadcasting uh, affiliate in Chicago, uh, had projected to, to initiate in Chicago in 1970. And it was really going to be a serial program about Black life in Chicago. Um, he was hired as a head writer. It was a staff of writers. And if you know anything about television writers, most of the time, you know, there is, there cannot be one person who writes each weekly show. So there is a group of writers or a staff, uh, a set of staff writers who work on a series and produce the scripts that are then dramatized. And so Durham was uh, hired as the head writer. The show became known as Bird of the Iron Feather. And in the book, I talk about how he came to that title. It's really inspired by Frederick Douglass. Um, and then he, the, he decides that his protagonist is going to be a Black police officer, a Black detective. Well, if you know anything about um, Chicago, both in the 60s and, and later, uh, the, the Chicago Police Department... Um, has a a story pass, um, and that story is not always positive, particularly if you're talking about the African American community. So his idea was to look at family life and conditions in Chicago among people, black folks uh, in that city, using. Uh, this protagonist, this black police officer and his family and his associates, including his fellow police officers. And so that's what Bird of the Iron Feather was about. Um, initially, the station, WTTW, received the Ford Foundation grant to get this show off the ground. And the plan was to have 100 episodes that would last for six months on a five-day-a-week schedule. Uh, half an hour shows. Um, but as I detail in, in Word Warrior, uh, the thing that happened was um, once the black community heard about this this forthcoming show series, they really got excited and bought into it, but they also wanted things done. You know, they didn't want an Amos and Andy on television um, with black people. Uh, they wanted some really something really positive, and of course, the definitions of positive varied. So there was this, all this consternation and activism and organizing and protests that went on behind the scenes that really kind of transformed what the series became. And um, and once. Uh, once it went on the air in January of 1970, um, given all of the background, uh, that, that, that turmoil that really got it to that point, um, it eventually became the number one, uh, viewed show at that point on WTTW. But 
also because of the turmoil, it only lasted 21 episodes, <laughs> which which is kind of amazing. If you think oh, they had projected 100, then they they kind of said, okay, 100 might be too ambitious, so let's then go to 36, and that 36 actually became 21. <laughs> so so in, in the book, I talk about how that that evolved, and 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 really, it was. Um, a victim, but also representative of the times, because uh, e- even though there were more black people on screen during the 1960s, um, there weren't as many behind the scenes, and that was part of the struggle. As I mentioned, the 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 period that I covered through the second to last chapter of the book, actually. Talk about uh, both of them. Chapters eleven and twelve um, in the in the book are devoted to uh, world travels with Muhammad Ali, um, and then later his work with Harold Washington, who becomes the first black mayor of Chicago. And I wonder if you would talk about um, his relationships and the way he uh, supported the careers of of those two sort of titans. The, talking about Muhammad Ali uh, and Harold Washington, those were some of the hardest chapters to write. Um, not because there weren't, there was not a wealth of material. There was, but Har- both Harold and Ali are such big figures. Um, you know, Harold Washington, maybe not not as much on a national scale, um, but Ali, Muhammad Ali, definitely. And so in writing that and doing the research on, on Durham's role in that whole creation of the book that is now called The Greatest, My Own Story, um, was really, really difficult. But it was really also... Uh, wonderful to find out um, the role that that Durham played in the initial negotiation of getting the book contract. Um, Once the contract with Random House was solidified, and then he started working with Ali, some of the struggles that he had in working with Muhammad Ali. Um, And um, the whole idea that when they went into the project, Ali was essentially banned from fighting because of his uh, refusal to be inducted into the army. So he was essentially a champion in exile. And um, I think initially the book was going to look at, you know, this this international figure um, in exile and how he, you know, moved on from that. When it became clear by the early 70s that, you know, he might get a chance to fight again and it might happen sooner than later. Then the focus had to be, okay, so the exile thing happened and now he might fight again. And what does that mean in terms of of Ali and the championship? And maybe the book can end uh, with him regaining his title. So that was really kind of the the way uh, Ali and Durham approached it. And unfortunately for Random House, they saw this as something that could be 
um, a quick turnaround um, kind of book. And they also saw that given his notoriety as well as his popularity, that the book would be, well, they hoped, of course, that it would be a bestseller. Um, what, whatever, uh, wherever Ali was in the process. Um, but as it turned out, <laughs> um, it took a lot longer than they thought. So while the contract may, may have happened in 1970, the book didn't come out until 1975. And the whole time, the the press was, hey, wh- what are you guys doing? We need to have this book. Luckily, uh, both for both uh, Muhammad Ali as well as for Durham, they had a editor who was in their corner and supportive and also someone who could press them or press Durham since he was the actual writer to really get this done. And that was Tony Morrison. Tony Morrison at that point was a senior editor at Random House and she um, inherited this assignment to work on with Durham on the greatest. And, and the thing that she said, I had the wonderful opportunity to interview her about her relationship with Durham during this period. And she said, one, he was a great writer. She learned a lot from him. He was he was dynamic. They had a great relationship. And she also had a good relationship with Ali himself. But <laughs> she would press him. Her bosses would press her. And and Durham just, he, he was turning out the, the chapters that he turned out, but it was just really slow. And it, the thing that happened was... Um, and, she recognized that everything he turned in was so good that, you know, to try to find another writer, um, Ali, first of all, would have objected, but to find another writer who was going to be as good as Dora was probably not going to happen and that they just needed to keep pushing him and pushing Ali to get it done. Um, The book was actually published in 1975, and two years later, the greatest the film uh, based on the book was uh, released. Durham did not write the script, although I think at one point he may have been approached about that, but he he didn't write the script and he wasn't happy with the way the book was interpreted. But um, but yes, it was, uh, it was really a whirlwind time for him, traveling with Ali, uh, making sure that he was at every of the, every one of the fights that Ali had during the period once he started fighting again and then following him around with his tape recorder, <laughs> recording conversations. He said at one point uh, that uh, Ali actually talked in his, his sleep and he would talk in lucid sentences. <laughs> so he would record that and, you know, and get that and try to figure out ways to incorporate it into the book. Um, but yeah, so that was the Ali time. And then once he finished, excuse me, working on the book, um, he, he did some freelancing, but he, he also ghost wrote another uh, book. Uh, it's the autobiography by, um, Anthony Quinn, the, um, Mexican American actor, um, his name is not attached to it, but um, he was the ghostwriter of that book. And he had other projects and other business deals that he was working. And then in the 70s, um, he reunited with uh, his good friend, 
Harold Washington. Harold and Richard Durham became friends in the 40s when Harold was um, still a student at Roosevelt University in Chicago. Uh, And, you know, I'm sure that they kept in touch over the years. But when Harold uh, uh, ran for mayor the first time, he ran in 1977, he was unsuccessful. But he energized, um, you know, quite a few people said, you know, this this man has something going on here, maybe down the road. So in 1982, with the next mayoral campaign, and once um, Harold Washington decided he was going to run again, um, several of the folks around him, his campaign um, managers and and organizers, were like, well, you need someone who's going to help you frame your press message. And and again, this is not, not because Harold Washington wasn't articulate and couldn't do it himself, but, you know, he was running a campaign and he couldn't do it by himself and he couldn't do everything. So everybody looked in this one uh, organizational meeting and said, mm, yep, you need someone to help you. And we know just who, Richard Durham. <laughs> and if you'll have him, I think it'll be great. And Richard was like, yeah. And Harold said, hey, let's do it. So every morning, just about, uh, on the campaign trail, uh, Harold Washington and his driver would go to Richard Durham's house, pick him up, and then they'd ride around to various campaign stops. Um, Richard would advise Harold, uh, and then he would, um, you know, go back and maybe, you know, write some speeches or campaign notes or notes about um, his position, Harold's position. And he was his... His man, um, he's kind of second, I don't want to say second in command because he had several other folks around him, but he was a major player uh, in the campaign um, through Harold's win in 1983. Um, he didn't, he decided though, this is Richard, decided that he was not going to join the, the Harold Washington administration once he became mayor, but he became, uh, he was a trusted advisor and friend, continued to be, you know, friend who Harold would come over or go over to uh, Richard and Clarice's house and sit and talk and, you know, get advice from Richard Durham on a, on a regular basis. Um, and so their friendship lasted um, until Richard died in 1984. It really is. Um a remarkable, a remarkable life. And I'm really glad that uh, through your book, um, uh, lots of people, myself included, are, are getting a chance to know, uh, know more about him. I wonder if you uh, tell us about any um, current projects you might have in the, in the works or anything else you might be working on. Yeah. Um, I, I have uh, some plans in the work to to maybe do. Uh, I think I mentioned in, in the beginning that music was my first love and still continues to be. And you know that I got into radio myself in terms of both announcing and producing and writing because of my my love for radio. 
what I would like to do next and, and have started kind of making moves in that direction is to write about uh, women, black women musicians, and maybe look at um, their lives and, and contributions on a generational basis. So, um, you know, maybe uh, take some uh, artists and, and really kind of examine their life, but look at it in terms of uh, what were some of the challenges and successes that they experienced based on, you know, their coming of age in the music and in the business, and then how that contrasted or, you know, was the same for other artists who may have come later or earlier. So that's what, that's what I'm looking at and thinking about right now. Well, that sounds like a really, uh, really great project. Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, Professor Williams, thank you so much for for joining me today. I really have enjoyed it. I really enjoyed uh, reading the book, as I mentioned. And uh, it's been a real pleasure to to speak with you about it. Good. It's been been a pleasure talking about it. I, I, I never thought that this would would captivate me, that Richard Durham's story would captivate me the way it has. But his his life and his his uh, writing and his activism really touched me and um, I'm just happy that I was able to uh, to you know in the book talk about his um, trajectory and really talk about the fact that he used his voice his word um, to be a, a warrior but his his weapons were um, his words and that you know it was all in the service of freedom justice and equality and the whole idea that those principles should be universally uh, applied and enjoyed by everyone. Folks, you've been listening to the New Books in African American Studies podcast. We are joined today by Professor Sonia D. Williams, who is the author of Word Warrior, Richard Durham, Radio and Freedom, uh, published by the University of Illinois Press. Thanks so much. We hope you'll join us again soon. Thank you.